Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. You may remember we looked at uh, John 6 uh, two weeks ago. We're going to be looking at really the same passage again, going a little bit further and, and just picking up on some different themes in this chapter. So John 6, I'll be reading verses 35 through 71. Before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you to hear from you. Uh, We come to you uh, to hear your voice, to be reminded of your gospel, to be pointed to our Savior. Uh, We come to you because we need you, uh, because we know apart from you we can do nothing. Uh, We come to you because we need our hearts softened and our minds renewed, and uh, we need uh, to be drawn near to you for communion with you are God, and we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now to those ends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 6, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet... You do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." 
Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. There is a danger in preaching on John 6, I think. Uh, when Jesus finished his, his sermon in John 6, all of his disciples left him but 12. This sermon emptied his pews. Uh, now, I hope you will all come back next week. Uh, today's sermon title is not a prediction, uh, but there is a reason that Jesus' sermon emptied the pews. And that reason is that the message of the cross is offensive. Uh, that's not an excuse for Christians being offensive, by the way. Uh, but when it comes down to it, however humble and gentle and gracious we might try to be, our message is offensive. It was offensive in Jesus' day, verse 61, some of Jesus' disciples, those who, at least for a time, uh, said they followed him, are grumbling and Jesus said, do you take offense at this? And they did, and they left. The message of the cross was offensive in Jesus' day, and it is perhaps more so today. Well, we have uh, been looking at John 6 for a couple of weeks now. We looked at the miracles at the beginning of the chapter, which set the stage for what follows. Uh, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, the good shepherd, uh, fed his sheep. He was a, a better Moses who brings bread in the wilderness, a better Elijah. He does this uh, through miraculously multiplying a few barley loaves for thousands, a better Boaz. He feeds them till they're full and has 12 baskets full left over. Then Jesus walks on the water. He is the, the I am whose path is through the sea. He is the Lord who says to his people, do not fear. Then we looked at the discussion which followed. The people saw the miracle of the loaves and the fish, and they wanted more. Uh, not more of Jesus, but more bread. Jesus told them not to work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. He was telling them there is more to life than this present life has to offer. Jesus came, and John was writing that we might have life. Real life, fullness of life, life as it was meant to be, our souls sustained and satisfied in communion with our God. Jesus came to give that life to those who would believe. 
We get that life by, by taking Jesus into ourselves. We can, we can, quote, eat his body and drink his blood through coming to Jesus and believing in him. Now, there were only two problems. One, that sounds terrible, this whole thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And two, some people didn't believe. So in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, But I said to you, oh, uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But then he goes on and he says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And the, the question is, why not? Uh, which brings us to our, our text as a whole and to our outline this morning. Uh, the, the last time we looked at this text and we looked at what it means that Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, this week we will look at, at some of the same verses, but specifically asking the question, why did some not believe? And how can we come to Jesus and find life? And there are four points. You can see them in your bulletin this morning. Uh, the cross is scandalous. Human wisdom fails. God, but God gives life, and so look to Jesus and believe. So first, the cross is scandalous. Now, what is it about Christianity that rubs you the wrong way? What do you have a hard time accepting? What offends you in some way? Uh, maybe you are a Christian, but there are still some things that just don't sit right with you. Uh, or maybe you're not a Christian and, and you have reasons. Uh, there are things that just plain seem offensive and you've been turned off to this whole Christianity thing because of it. What do you find offensive? Well, let's see what people found offensive in Jesus' day because it, it started way back then. Uh, and we're gonna start near the end of our text, so don't let that throw you off. But verses 60 and 61 say this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, what is it that they were talking about? Uh, what, what was the hard saying that so offended them? Well, the answer is probably everything from verses 48 through 58. So that there were 11 verses of offense there. Uh, what is Jesus saying in those verses that is so offensive? Well, he says in verse 48 that he is the bread of life. And that, verse 51, that the bread he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. And to eat this bread is to live forever. And so the people wonder in verse 52, well, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which is a fair question. Now, as we saw last week, I think Jesus has already made that clear. Verse 29, Jesus said, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes shall never thirst. Verse 40, whoever looks on the son and believes has eternal life. But Jesus, knowing full well that they were fighting about this, he doesn't lighten up, but he actually doubles down. He adds to eat his flesh that we must drink his blood. And he repeats that in verses 53 and 54 and 55 and 56. Now, flesh in the Gospel of John refers to humanity. John 1:14, the word became flesh. John 3:6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. 
And the phrase flesh and blood often in scripture simply refers to humanity, again, as when Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 17, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Flesh and blood there simply refers to humanity, human power, human knowledge. In John 1.13, we have both terms again when Jesus says, when John says that those who receive Jesus become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And even if those phrases have slightly different references, blood and the flesh and the will of man, uh, they are rough parallels uh, that, uh, that all have to do with humanity in the present age. And so when Jesus talks about his flesh and blood, make no mistake, he, he is referring to his humanity. That's what he's saying. You, you, he, he is going to offer up his uh, body as a sacrifice for sin. So in verse 51, when Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, he is referring to giving up his flesh, his blood, his humanity, his life on the cross for sin. Now, they wouldn't necessarily have picked up on all that, but the context, John tells us, you may remember, of this whole conversation is the Passover, according to verse 4. So Jesus moves from pointing himself to himself as bread, like the manna in the wilderness, to pointing to his flesh and blood like the Passover lamb offered up in the place of Israel, an offering which every Israelite partook of every year. So Jesus is saying that he is going to give himself as a sacrifice for sin, and we must partake of that sacrifice by faith. Now, we know that Jesus doesn't mean we must literally eat his flesh and drink his blood for a number of reasons, some of which I talked about last time. Uh, One is that would be cannibalism, which the Bible tends to frown upon. Uh, But two, it is clear from the parallelism used throughout this chapter that to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood is to come to him and believe. As verse 35 says, whoever comes to Jesus shall not hunger. And whoever believes in him shall never thirst, right? Coming and believing satisfies the hunger and quenches the thirst of our souls. And that Jesus is not talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood doesn't make it unoffensive, however. The message of the cross is still offensive. The message of the cross means that we're all sinners, uh, that our sin deserves judgment, a judgment that he took, in our place, that we are incapable of making ourselves right with the Father and that we need a scapegoat. Now, those things would have been actually acceptable, more acceptable in Jesus' day, to be honest, Uh, but that's not all. The the Jews of Jesus' day knew that they were sinners. They knew that they were in need of atonement. Uh, They regularly offered sacrifices in the temple for just that reason. But the idea that a person might be offered The idea that a human being would be a sacrifice for sin, that was offensive. It was distasteful. It was wrong. I mean, God had some pretty strong words in the Old Testament for those who offered up human sacrifice. He did not uh, agree with it. And now Jesus comes along and says, he is going to give himself for us. Now, this revulsion to the idea of human, a human substitute sacrifice hasn't gone away. It hasn't gotten any less over the years. In fact, at some point, someone came up with the idea that the, 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 the idea that the father giving his son on the cross is somehow cosmic child abuse, right? It just seems wrong that Jesus would go and suffer and die. 
And while there are many things that we might say to that, of course, the most important thing is this. The cross is not imposed on an unwilling victim, right? The son came willingly to suffer for sin. Verse 38 uh, of our text, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And earlier in John 4:34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And nevertheless, the message of the cross, right, is, is offensive to us, that a person should die as a sacrifice for another's sin, that someone should give his flesh and blood and others should benefit from that. And yet, uh, is that such a crazy idea? We live in a country where a war was fought to gain certain freedoms to found this nation. We live in a country where another war was fought to abolish slavery and gain certain other freedoms. Our whole history is of people giving of themselves that we might have life. Why is it so far-fetched that Christ might give himself for us? Of course, where those analogies break down, and they do on multiple points, but uh, where they break down, right, in, in, the, in the Revolutionary War, at least the way we tell it, uh, some would disagree, uh, and in the Civil War, the people needing freedom were not the bad guys. But when Christ came to die for sin, we are the bad guys. We are the rebels in need of pardon. We are the offenders in need of forgiveness. We are the sinners in need of mercy. Christ came to die for sin that we might have life. The message of the cross is that, that we are the bad guys and Christ came to bring us freedom anyway. The cross is scandalous and offensive and of course we've only skimmed the surface of that this morning. So first, the cross is scandalous. Second, human wisdom fails. Uh, human wisdom fails to grasp the cross. Uh, there, there are lots of things that I don't understand. Uh, particle physics, the Mandarin language, most of the quirky things that my dog does, and why they would ever cancel a TV show on a cliffhanger. But they do it anyway. I don't understand those things, and more. And it's not because they are intrinsically incomprehensible. Uh, somebody understands those things. And perhaps, given enough time and study, I could too. Uh, though there are some things I probably couldn't understand. Because in the end, like, we just can't understand everything no matter how much time we have. We're just not smart enough, and that's okay. But when we say that human wisdom fails, it's not because we don't have enough time, nor is it because we're not smart enough. We mean that human wisdom of itself cannot understand spiritual things. When Jesus says he is the living bread that came down from heaven, people begin to grumble in verse 41. You see, they, they, they know Jesus' mother, Mary. They, they know his at least assumed father, Joseph. How can Jesus say he came down from heaven? You see, sometimes what we know, or at least what we think we know, gets in the way of real understanding. Uh, perhaps this is a matter of time, though, right? They, they could, in theory, have understood the incarnation, that, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became incarnate in Mary's womb. They could have, in theory, but they didn't. When Jesus says he is the living bread and the, the bread he gives for the life of the world is, is his flesh, a, a fight breaks out in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They are disturbed by the thought. Now, again, perhaps they, they could have understood that. Perhaps they could have understood that Jesus as the God-man who took on humanity to offer up himself a sacrifice for sin, but they didn't. 
And when they say in verse 60, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Or who can listen to it? When they take offense, perhaps they could have come to an intellectual understanding of what Jesus was talking about, although it seems they did not. But when Jesus says in verse 44, no one can come to me. And in verse 63, the flesh is no help at all. He's not talking about mere intellectual understanding. What he's saying is no one can come to Jesus and believe in him. That is, no one can have what the Bible calls saving faith in their own strength. No one will come to understand who Jesus is and put their trust in him by the sheer power of their own intellect. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this lack of spiritual discernment surely went into their intellectual troubles. They tried to understand the things Jesus was saying from a a literal perspective. They wanted physical bread to satisfy their physical hunger. They are offended at Jesus' offer of his flesh and blood because it sounds distasteful. But Jesus' point is clear. No one can come. Oh, he'll he'll give an exception, uh, but first let's wrestle with the rule, right? Uh, Jesus says, no one can come to me. Each of us in our flesh cannot come to Jesus and believe. We don't have it in us. And now it's true, we cannot come to Jesus in our flesh because we don't want to. We are happy to have things from Jesus, but to come to Jesus himself as he is, as a person, requires us to give up too much. So we have a mental block from understanding spiritual things in a spiritual way. Naturally, in our fallen state, our hearts are oriented away from Jesus and to the things of this world. And so Jesus repeats twice in this chapter, verses 44 and 65, no one can come to me. No one is able to come. No one has the ability to come. No one can come. And Jesus says earlier in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you can't see, you can't understand. And if you can't understand, you can't come. And Paul, by the way, says something similar in Romans 8. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, if the cross itself wasn't scandalous enough, this drives us crazy. In our individualistic, you can be anything you want to be, do anything you want to do, day and age, to tell someone that you are not able to come to Jesus of your own free will, in your own strength, is off the charts offensive. But this is what Jesus teaches. No one is able to come. This is what Paul teaches. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The natural person does not accept and is not able to understand spiritual things. Now, if all we had were these first two points, a scandalous cross and the failure of human wisdom, I would expect these pews to be empty next week. But thankfully, that is not all Jesus has to say. So uh, first we looked at the cross as scandalous and the failure of human wisdom, but next point, God gives life. Uh, This is that, that part in the movie, you know, where every known option has failed, but all of a sudden out of left field comes something you didn't expect 
to save the day. Uh, in plays and movies, it's called deus ex machina, which means God out of the machine, uh, because the Greek gods would come on stage at the last minute to save the day. The reality though, unlike fanciful myths, is that God was here the whole time. But spiritual things are spiritually discerned and we just didn't realize it. And so let's start back at the beginning. Jesus begins in verses 35 and 36. Again, one more time. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Here's the problem, Jesus says. You see, but you don't believe. You lack spiritual discernment. You're, you're not able to come to me. You are in the flesh and, and the flesh cannot comprehend spiritual things. Jesus says the same thing in the other gospels, quoting Isaiah. He says, the people hear but do not understand. They see but do not perceive. Their hearts are dull, their ears are heavy, their eyes are blind. They do not understand and turn and be healed. It seems hopeless, but Jesus goes on in verse 37 and he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Interesting. Right? There are some, Jesus is saying, given by the Father to the Son who will come. But how? Right? If, if humanity, if the flesh is no help at all, as Jesus says in verse 63, how can those given by the Father to the Son, how can they come to Jesus? Well, after some grumbling, Jesus goes on in verse 44, not Jesus grumbling, but grumbling by the crowds. Jesus goes on in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The father must do something to draw them to Jesus. They cannot do it on their own, in their flesh. No one can come unless. How does the father draw them? Uh, is, it, is it like some great invisible lasso that God swings it around and ropes some poor unsuspecting soul and drags it to Christ? Well, verse 45, Jesus goes on. He says, it is written by the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So the way we are drawn to Jesus, Jesus says, is by hearing and learning from the Father. When we hear and learn from the Father, we are taught by God and we come to Jesus. Okay, so how do we hear and learn from the Father? Verse 46, Jesus goes on. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, uh, what is Jesus saying there? Earlier in the Gospel of John, he put it like this in John 3, 11. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, we, Jesus speaking of himself, and probably the Holy Spirit, that's why plural there, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Even earlier, John put it like this in John 18, he said, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, meaning Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus is from God and with God. He has seen the Father and makes known the Father. And he bears witness to what he has heard. As he puts it in John 8, 26, he says, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John 8, 28, a few verses later, he says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. 
John 7, 16, Jesus answered that my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Okay, what, what are we getting at? Here, here's where we are. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. The Father draws by teaching. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. We hear the Father through the Son who has heard and speaks what the Father taught him. This is what Paul says in Romans 10, 14 to 17, which was read earlier, that to be saved, we must hear preaching, and preaching is the word of Christ. And so to hear the preacher is ultimately to hear Christ, and to hear Christ is to hear the Father. Now, uh, this doesn't seem to put us really in any better of a position than we were before, because lots of people heard Jesus teaching. The people there that day had heard Jesus teaching, but they still didn't believe. Lots of people hear preaching, but they don't all believe. And so what makes the difference? We hear the Father through the Son. Okay, fine, but why do some come and believe while others hear and move on? Well, this brings us back to verse 63, when Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. This brings us to what is really a major theme in John's gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit. We must be born again by the Spirit if we are to even see the kingdom. The Spirit blows where he wishes. You cannot see him, but you can see his effects in people's lives. But how does the Spirit work? And, and when and where and why? Jesus says here in verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And John says of Jesus in John 3.35, for he whom God has sent, that is Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. You see, in the Gospel of John, there is some kind of mysterious connection between the word and the spirit in John's Gospel. Uh, the spirit works when the word is spoken, which is not to say that the spirit works in the same way every time the word is spoken or that we can somehow manipulate the spirit by speaking the word but simply the fact that the Spirit works through the Word. That's what John is saying to us. And think about how, think about how Jesus illustrates that in this gospel. In John 5, Jesus heals a lame man. How? He says to him in verse 8, John 5, 8, get up, take up your bed and walk. Now, did that lame man have the ability to walk one moment before Jesus spoke? No, not at all. He, he was lame. The flesh is no help at all. Then Jesus spoke. And with his word, the spirit worked. Or think about Lazarus. We haven't gotten to his story yet, but in John chapter 11, a man named Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, will die. Jesus will go to this man's tomb, a man dead and buried for three days, and Jesus will say, Lazarus, come out. Did Lazarus have the ability to get out of the grave a fraction of a second before Jesus spoke? No, he was dead. His body stunk with decay, we're told. The flesh is no help at all. But Jesus speaks and the spirit gives life. How does the father draw people to himself? As they hear Jesus speak and the spirit brings life. Friends, th this is why we pray for people when we share the good news of the gospel with them. We know that only God can turn their hearts to himself. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, which means they are only discerned with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
This is why we pray for the preaching of the gospel. All of my work is in vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. It is fruitless if the Spirit doesn't work with the word preached. Everything I'm doing is empty unless the Holy Spirit works along with the word. And so pray for that work of the Spirit, that God would do his work through his word in drawing people to himself. And so the cross is scandalous and human wisdom fails. It's powerless. It's no help at all. But God gives life as the Son speaks and the Spirit acts through the word of the Son and the work of the Spirit. And so look to Jesus and believe. It seems as if all of Jesus' followers at that moment, at least, except the 12, Jesus' inner circle, so to speak, left him. Because Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to go as well? And Peter's response in verses 68 and 69 is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter's confession here involves two things. You have the words of eternal life. Again, the, the words that give life come from Jesus, and you are the Holy One of God. On account of Jesus' word, Peter recognizes who Jesus is, and he believes. And that's what John wants us to do as well. Hear this word and believe in Jesus. Now, maybe you are struggling. You, you've been around Christianity for a while. You've been checking it out, but you're still not sure. There, st there are still some things that seem wrong to you, uh, offensive even. And so you're studying, maybe, trying to figure it out, using every resource available to you. By all means, study, right? Search the scriptures. But you also need to know that there is a point at which your intellect will fail you. There are biases and commitments and presuppositions that will keep you from trusting in Jesus. The flesh is no help at all. At some point, and better sooner than later, You've got to cry out for the Spirit to soften your heart, inform your mind, renew your will, and persuade and enable you to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Come, see Jesus, the crucified and risen one who died for our sin and rose to defeat death, that we might have forgiveness and new life in him. Come and see and believe, and when you do, give thanks to the Spirit who opens the eyes of the blind and gives understanding to the simple. Let's pray. Our Father, we simply pray for the work of your Holy Spirit right now, that he would be working through your word in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.